This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. How do you feel about fighting in hockey? You know, when you go to a hockey game like a Canucks game, do you expect to see a fight or two break out on the ice? Professional hockey has been really grappling with this for a while now. We know how destructive and detrimental fighting can be, and yet many, many fans still expect to see some fisticuffs when they watch a game. Why? Where does that feeling come from? And what is the human cost of that? Well, that's the topic of a new book out this month called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. It is written by journalist Jeremy Allingham, who joins us now. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote about, and this really struck me at the beginning of the book, you wrote about going to a Giants game on a Friday night and observing the crowd when a fight broke out. What really struck you about that? Well, it's funny because up until that point uh, of going to that innocuous Friday night game, I, I had really always internalized the message that, you know, from the Don Cherries of the world, from those Rock'em Sock'em videos, the clip you just played there, that fighting was normal and it was a part of the game it was, and it was necessary. And for some reason that night, I'm sitting there with the boys seven rows up, drinking a few beers, just expecting a, a regular old quintessential Canadian night at the hockey game. And then all of a sudden the gloves drop and hit the ice before the puck even does. It's one of those fights that happens right away. And the crowd rises, the guttural thunder. And I, for some reason, zoned in on the players' faces. And what I saw was these were two children. And we were the adults in the room rising to our feet, screaming at the top of our lungs for them to bash each other's faces in. And once the fight subsided, I grabbed a program from someone close to me. Um, it turned out the kids were 16 and 17 years old, so literal children in the eyes of the law. And my stomach sank, and I kind of retreated to the concourse and uh, haven't looked at fighting in hockey the same ever since. It really does still happen, though. I was telling uh, you know the listeners earlier that I was at a Las Vegas Golden Knights San Jose Sharks game on Sunday night in Las Vegas. And a fight broke out and just exactly what you just described there happened, right? Crowd jumps on their feet. Mm-hmm. They are yelling there. And it was really striking to me because I thought, boy, they, they, these fans are really deeply into it. So do you think the players are doing it because the fans expect it or do the players expect it? I think this message, the one I mentioned at the beginning, has has truly and sincerely been internalized, yes, by fans, but more so by the players from a very young age. They are taught that to succeed, for your team to succeed, you must sacrifice. You must sacrifice your body and, you know, in the case of fighters, uh, sacrifice your brain and your well-being for the good of the team, for the victory, for the clan. And what they don't, what isn't hammered home to them is that this has consequences. This can have devastating consequences in the form of traumatic brain injuries, in the form of something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and the symptoms of that are devastating. We get, I get into it in the book with three guys, all from BC, all with dreams of making, pro, of, of making their pro hockey uh, careers and who in the end have these lives that are really challenging that, that, have you know like mental mental uh, health problems, addictions issues, um, in and out of prison, homelessness. Like these guys have very challenging lives, and so 
um, you know, to see that happening is is so sad. But I, I mean, again, these guys thought they could make their right. pro hockey career come come true by doing it. You talked to three well-known hockey enforcers, James McEwen, Stephen Pete, and Dale Purinton. I just want people to have a listen right now, Jeremy, of a clip of a fight that Dale Purinton took part in when he was playing for the Islanders back in 2004. Shoots into the corner, but now Purinton puts Cairns down and keeps pounding away, and Garth Snow will come to Cairns' rescue. Dale Purinton knocked Cairns to the ice and then kept flailing away. And you don't often see a goaltender decide to join the fray. The Ranger goaltender, Mike Dunham, is standing at the Ranger line. Cairns is up, though. And now Cairns answering Purinton back. The linesmen have all they could do to keep Eric Cairns and Dale Purinton apart. Now, you talked to Dale Purinton. What's it like for him now? Dale's a great guy. He's, you know, he's been coaching. He has a couple of kids, and he's been coaching uh, some youth hockey on Vancouver Island. Uh, he struggles a lot with you know, some of those symptoms that go along with long-term traumatic brain injuries. Uh, you know, he has a lot of mental health issues, some depression issues. Um, and after his playing career, I mean, he had a lot of impulse control issues and, you know, he still dealt in violence and, and that violence ended up breaking out outside of a bar in New York state at one point. And he ended up going to jail in a maximum security New York state penitentiary for uh, about five months. So he was away from his family at that time, but since that time, he's kind of um, decided to, to try and get his life together. He still has a lot of challenges um, when it comes to mental health, but uh, he's, he's living his life and trying to support other fighters. Um, you know, the reason I actually met Dale was my story of Stephen Pete, and Stephen and Dale know each other from fighting each other, but Dale read my story about how poorly Stephen Pete was doing and wanted to reach out uh, for him to help. And, and people who know hockey enforcers know they often have a heart of gold, so... Dale's one of those guys. He's just a fantastic dude, but uh, yeah, facing some challenges. So would you say that all three of them have similar stories then of kind of where they're at right now? Um, I would say no. They're, they're, where they're at now is, is quite different. But what I will tell you is that the way they got to where they are is very similar. These are young guys who had dreams of playing in, in the pro ranks. And what they found was the way they could do that was possibly by using their fists. And, you know, um, I can tell you that Dale is getting by. James is doing. James McEwen is doing quite well. Former captain of the Corner Rockets, he actually put on a hockey school this last summer. Still has a lot of challenges from traumatic brain injuries, but he's doing fairly well. And then Stephen Pete um, has had a lot of struggles in and out of prison with homelessness, mental health issues as well. I'm, I have been in touch with him. He's doing okay, but uh, again, these are these are challenges that face them on a daily basis. Do you think, Jeremy, that things are changing? Um, I think, so So last year in the NHL, it was an all-time low for fights, but there was still 226 fights in the NHL last year. And if you add up the NHL with the American League and the East Coast League and then all major junior across the country, there were 1,770 fights in hockey last year. So we can say that fighting seems to be leaving the game, but if it is, it's happening very slowly and there are still hundreds upon hundreds of fights that happen, and we know the devastating consequences of those fights. Is the NHL more willing to admit that these days, do you think? No, not at all. I mean, um, earlier this summer, Gary Bettman appeared before a a parliamentary subcommittee on sports-related concussions, and, uh, I mean, I was flabbergasted. He really sidestepped questions about fighting, and I don't know whether he did this intentionally or not, of course, but he very clearly misrepresented the science on 
uh, traumatic brain injuries and uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He was actually corrected by the doctor he cited at the hearing the day after the hearing. So um, it doesn't seem as though the NHL is super keen to really address this in any meaningful way. So what will make the difference, do you think? Will there be a turning point? Will it be the players who eventually have to say, I'm not doing this? Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be the players. What, I, what it has to be, I think, and the problem is, is we see Gary Bettman kind of dodging, but it has to be someone who has control of the rules, who has influence on the rules. Like, they have to decide that if we love the game of hockey, then we certainly have to care about the players who play hockey. And they have to say to themselves, we don't want any more deaths. No more Steve Monitors, Rick Rippins, Wade Belak, Derek Bugards. No more guys like in my book who are suffering after their game's over. They have to put player health and safety first and legislate fighting out of the game. And the way to do that, there's a great example from the Ontario Hockey League just three or four years ago. They brought in a rule where if you fight more than three times, in a season, you get a suspension every time you fight after that. And what happened? They cut fighting in half in one season. So if you bring in rules that just aggressively go after that behavior, you can snuff it out. Do you think the stories are more public too? Like you mentioned some names here like Rip Rippin and, and Derek Bugard. We're, are we much more willing and open to talk about those cases now, whereas before they might have just been kind of swept under the rug? Yeah, I think they were swept under the rug, and I think we—I think there is a more more of a societal willingness to address those stories. But I still think there's a huge problem with loving the game of hockey and then loving the players, but then once they leave the ice, just forgetting about them. That's what's happened to these guys in my book. You know, like they—they they felt all this support from these fans and from their teammates and from their coaches and their teams, and then they left the ice. And none of that was there anymore. And that can be really tough to deal with, especially when you have a lot of challenges. So I think the discussion is great, but we really need to focus in on the, like I like, well, like the book says, the human, the human cost and the human aspect of this story. Right. Because a lot of the general managers, I would imagine, the coaches even, are still of that generation where fighting was acceptable, almost even encouraged. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a generational thing, but I think, again, it's that it's the reinforcement of the message of the value of fighting, that it needs to be there, that it serves some purpose, when what we know is that it's actually hurting people. And just like any other, uh, you know, hits from behind, hits to the head, um, stick swinging, whatever it may be, this practice hurts our players. And if we love hockey, we should care about our players and stop it. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time on this today. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me. It's Jeremy Allingham. He's a journalist. The book is called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey.